Hey everybody, it's Mark Thompson, and this is the Chief Executive Podcast. I have to say that Sarah Hirschland is truly one of the most admired chief executives in the world for having taken the U.S. Olympic team and the Paralympic Committee from a transformation that was required from the devastating scandals and then a reinvention of the way the U.S. participated in the Olympic Games. And she's been a dear friend, a person I've seen become a first-time CEO and really own it like no other CEO I've met. Please listen to Sarah Hirschland talk about her journey in taking a life that was always filled with a passion and love for the nobility and the learning that you get from sport and converting that into something that has been profoundly a game changer, literally, for the U.S. Olympic team. Sarah, thank you for taking the time to hang out with us on this conversation. Yeah, hi, Mark. It's my pleasure to be here. When I think about the journey that you've been on, Sarah, you've had a career that sort of led you up to this. Uh, Most leaders who are thrown in this kind of responsibility, uh, as you have, have had a combination of experiences and at least in reflection, looking through the rearview mirror. Tell us a little bit about how you got here. And uh, then we'll talk a little bit about maybe how others can follow in your steps. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, I guess it all starts with um, back when I was a child, I had the, the privilege of being, you know, an, an athlete um, thrown into all kinds of athletic teams and, and individual sports. And as I started to think about the things in my life that had a meaningful impact on me, mm. um, I realized that my time in sport was some of my favorite time, not because I was a particularly good athlete, but because it was a time when a lot of barriers came down and people were united and the teamwork that came out of that was something that I really enjoyed. Um, And I wanted to be part of for the long term. And so coming through college, I made my way into the sport community at Duke University, where I was really lucky to go. You can imagine the sport community there is pretty good. Yeah, Um, imagine. It was amazing. (laughs) Tell me about that team. Take a moment and uh, let us know what you were thinking and feeling when you had an opportunity to be a part of that sports organization. It was incredible. It was an incredible opportunity for me to be you know, at an institution that was clearly very well regarded, but also an academic institution that had a huge um, sort of sport program and sport brand that really carried um, a lot of the loyalty and a lot of the passion. And that's that's what fueled me. So I, you know, I spent my time in school as a student athletic trainer um, and I worked, I did a lot of work study while I was in school, um, learning different parts of the athletic department. And that led me into a a sports technology startup with a couple of Duke graduate friends Mm. um, that sort of kickstarted my career in a way that was very non-traditional for someone coming out of a school like Duke. But it was a great opportunity to learn. Um, A startup entity that was focused on this, this new emerging thing called technology and content back then was websites. I'm not that old, but it sounds like a long time (laughs) ago. Um, and that's really where we got started. And so my journey was learning a number of different facets of sports. It started in how do we tell stories? How do we tap that passion and tell stories and distribute that content in different channels? Still a very relevant piece of what we do today. I then um, shifted gears and started to work for an entity that actually was a bit of a boutique consulting firm specializing in the sport industry. 
And there I started to learn about different facets of both how to run sport businesses that, that sort of owned their, their rights, if you will, sports properties, as we call them, but also how were commercial entities and big brands investing in sport to leverage their marketing resources. Um, and that experience in the, the, the consulting space was incredible for me because I had access to working for lots of different kinds of clients seeing different kinds of corporate cultures, understanding different kinds of investments, um, different pieces of the sports business, at that point, mostly professional sports. Um, and, and then I had the, the, the call, the, the proverbial call from someone saying, hey, we're looking for a someone to help run the commercial and revenue side of the United States Golf Association. And you know, golf had been something I'd done a bunch of work in as a consultant. Um, it was a sport that I was learning to play and having a lot of fun with it. And it gave me an opportunity to really shift gears from very for-profit driven entities into a nonprofit entity that had been around for a hundred years, governed by, you know, a nonprofit board run by committees and a very different sort of business structure and a very different motivation. Um, and so I made that leap from the for-profit world into the nonprofit world, um, all the while um, focusing on, you know, generating revenue, capitalizing on the passion of sport um, to drive business. And, and, and truly all of those roles led me to the one I'm in now um, that sort of is structured. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, the only Olympic committee in the world that doesn't receive government funding. We, we generate our own resources. Um, we happen to field the best team in the world, which is awfully fun to be part of. Um, and so, so there it is. That's the journey. When you think about that journey, what was that call like? You had been observing, you had been observing what was going on in the world at the time. And, and then you get this, in a sense, call to noble action to be of service in, in, in a very different way. What was yeah, that all about? You know, it's an interesting decision to, to think about the moment in time when you walk into an organization. I walked into this one, I describe it as it was a burning house. And you have to be ready to run into a burning house. Um, and I believe so deeply in the premise of sport. And I felt like um, the potential was for this house to burn to the ground and it, it was worth saving, right? It was that calling of saying, there is so much good in what sport brings to society, albeit some very real challenges and a culture of abuse was the, was the one we were facing at that moment in time that was hugely problematic at a moment in time when society, you know, overall was opening its eyes to abuse and, and these realities. And so the, the difficult part is you're running into a burning house and that is going to, and you know, that work is going to be hard, not just difficult intellectually, but difficult emotionally, um, and really, really difficult to manage a team of people who are dealing with those very real emotions as well. At the same time, the benefit of running into an organization like that is you don't need to secure permission to change. You have the permission to make change. You have to make the right decisions. Um, but sometimes, you know, creating change in an organization, just getting over the hurdle of change is hard. I didn't have to get over that hurdle coming into this organization. I had permission to make changes. In fact, the mandate, I just had to figure out which ones and then how, you know, how much you put your foot on the gas and the brake, what's the organization and the community's readiness to change and how do you navigate your way through that? When you were facing that and you'd seen the, the track record so far, 
you had to collaborate with such a disparate set of people and organization and sports. How do you bring them together when the house is burning? And yeah, well, you, 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 you try to listen, right? I mean, we, we listened as much as we could listen for a, a long time. And then you aggregate, what have you heard? We started our reform efforts with a list of 200 things um, <laughs> that needed to be fixed based on you know, very disparate constituents. Um, fortunately, most of those were not in conflict with each other. It was just a long list of stuff. When the doors of change open, it is like floodgates, right? Everything is on the table. Um, and that's the challenge is then you, then you have to start prioritizing. The um, permission that you had when you're there for rescue is one thing. The capacity to be able to communicate across cultures and time zones and, and priorities is yet another. When you've listened deeply, what were some of the things that, that you learned? But what, what do you wish you knew at the start of that listening process about how differently people see the same crisis and how they might also see what the common objective might be? Yeah, you know, I mean, you, you said it well, the lens through which each individual, each organization, each, each constituent sees the same problem is inherently different. Um, and the solution oftentimes is, the assumption is different. And so you have to figure out how to understand um, those different perspectives and then try to create commonality among them. And, and try to help them understand one another's challenges. And so for us, I think one of the critical keys to our success was rather than having conversations with this constituent and then that constituent, we really tried to bring a lot of people in the room together. Um, now that slows the process down, right? It does not make you fast, and it, but it does accomplish the objective of creating a common set of understanding and a common set of facts and ultimately trying to get to some common solutions. And so, we, you know, we had some very lengthy, onerous, albeit maybe even bureaucratic processes, um, but we brought a lot of people in and, and allowed them to be part of those processes in a really meaningful way and surrendered some control. Um, and I think that was a, a really successful approach. Talk about that surrender of control. Imagining when you do have that many different players literally in the room that there had to be moments where it either hit the wall or came to trench uh, warfare. Uh, how do you get them back on track? Yeah, it's, it, it, there is inevitably points in time where you just don't, you don't get alignment, right? You don't get a consensus. Um, and sometimes you have, to, you have to make a decision to move forward. And sometimes you table the issue. And I would say, mm. I, could, I could give you examples of cases in which we did both. Mm. Sometimes we said, we're not gonna get to alignment. Can we set this one aside and keep going? Um, and we'll come back to it. And actually, we're actually coming back to some of those things now um, in a different context, in a different day. Sometimes the sky looks a little clearer um, and it can be a little easier to get to consensus. Sometimes you make a decision and you have to say, not everybody's gonna love this, but we gotta make the decision and we gotta move. When you think about the what was at stake and you talk about the, the powerful purpose in your mind and in your heart and soul around sport, what, what is it about sport that's so meaningful to a nation? 
what's so meaningful to an individual? To, could you help those who may not have had the privilege of being able to be on the field or had the capacity to do so? I think about this also with the Paralympics. You have people stepping up in a, in a different way. What What's going on there in terms of what's so rich for you? That well, makes it's, that it's, I mean, I say, you know, uh, the thing I love the most about this role is we're in the human performance business. Mm. And so being in the human performance business is a very inspirational space to be in. When you're successful, there is nothing more personally fulfilling than either being one to accomplish something you didn't believe you could achieve mm. or watching someone else do that and knowing that you played a role in it. Um, in our case, you know, the achievement is very visible, right? It is it is on the field of play, um, as you can as you can see, but it is also very human. And so the, the 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 juxtaposition of athletic achievement with this inspiration that comes from the fact that it's very human and it inspires uh, achievement, even if it isn't athletic achievement, it inspires achievement in others um, is a really powerful thing add to it the culture of team and the teamwork that comes with it, even in an individual sport, the team that is built around athletics and all of the components that, that are at play there is a very powerful thing to be part of. Uh, you know, I say all the time, sport not only builds characteristics of human beings that are critically important, it also builds characteristics of great communities that are critically important. And so we all learn from sport in a way that's really powerful. Um, some of that can be just physical attributes and strength and fitness and some of those things, but the resilience, the ability to lose, um, to not get there and to get yourself back up and keep going and set another set of goals. Oftentimes in sport, you're achieving things you didn't know you could achieve. And so if we think about how we deploy that to an everyday life, to a boardroom, to a business environment, even to a relationship, a family, a, you know, a marriage, these are skills that become very, very powerful skills. So, as, you know, as, as someone who does what I do, it won't surprise you. I believe that sport plays a very, very important role in the development of our people and the development of our communities. I'm thinking about how powerful this notion is of being able to operate and appreciate the importance and strength of a team. There's lots of discussion about that. And there's certainly lots of individual performance in terms of helping that person become better, faster, smarter, uh, higher impact. Talk about the, the teamwork itself. T talk to me what, about what you have seen is the, the, the set of traits of the, of the best teams uh, and what you've experienced in that regard. Well, the best teams, frankly, I mean, simply put, are the ones that are the willing to, the most willing to be vulnerable, um, because that's where improvement comes from. You know, the ability to 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 set goals, to measure yourself against those goals, and to acknowledge where you did or didn't meet them, and to try to assess why, not as individuals, but as a collective, um, because there's nothing more powerful than feeling like you have people helping you get better. Um, and when teams do that collectively, um, it's a very, very powerful thing. And so the best teams are the ones who are going to be willing to say, let's let's set some goals. And by the way, probably the combination of individual and collective, as many organizations try to do. Um, mm -hmm. And let's measure ourselves against those goals. And then let's figure out where we reach them or achieve them. Do we understand why? And where we don't, do we understand why? And are we willing to be vulnerable enough to poke at that? 
um, to then make improvement in a way that people feel supported and not threatened. When you talk about that, that support network, there's lots of research about psychological safety. And that would also be, I guess, another case of where that might also be framed through the lens of where we came from, what our background is, and, and perhaps even how much we might believe in the mutually beneficial outcome of, or the goal. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, examples, certainly along this way, um, where you had to make changes and, and people felt maybe a little too vulnerable and, and how you helped them through it, that change? Yeah, well, you know, I think, um, I mean, Jace, you know, it, it, it almost seems easier to create psychological safety on a sports team than it does in a, mm. in a work environment, um, probably because there's a bit more simplicity in it. More clarity, you mean, around where we're headed and what our exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty finite definition of what success looks like, right? That's pretty well fixed. Um, but you have to start to poke a little bit at, and when you get to, you know, even an elite level, um, you're really starting to get to a very, very fine line between, between good and better, um, or great and the best. Um, and so even, even in those instances, you're, you're assessing minute, minute, minute details, and you're having to make choices. Um, who, who's making the cut? Who's not making the cut? And how are we going to get comfortable? And for us, there was a lot of the way we've always done things in trying to reform the way we're going to do things going forward. And we, we have been, you know, this is fact, not me bragging. We have been the best team in the world on the Olympic stage, especially in the summer games for a very long time. We're the winningest team in history. Hard to argue and say we need to change things, right? When, when things are going pretty well. Right. Then you enter this culture, this undercurrent of abuse that was starting to really, you know, make itself known. And you start to question what were we doing that was allowing that culture to, to, right. to happen? And it causes you to question all of it um, and start to ask yourself. And so we what we had to do was sort through how do we keep what is what is helping us get to the goals that we want? while at the same time acknowledging that there may be pieces woven in there that are enabling something we're not okay with. Um, and how do you manage and balance that? And it became a discussion of, is competitive excellence being pushed at the expense of well-being? And can those two things actually coexist? My premise from the get-go walking into this organization was I'm going to prove that well-being supports competitive excellence and that there is no, these two things are not on opposite sides of the scale. Um, if you have humans who are fulfilled and rich and safe and comfortable in their environment, they will perform at an even greater level. It sounds intuitive, but we came from a place where there was question about whether that was true. Um, and so we had to sort of build these hypotheses and then let them prove themselves out in small ways without throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying everything we're doing is wrong and needs to be rethought. There's a lot that was right, but it wasn't all the way right. You're talking about certain experiments that you started to run, or you would operationalize one of these principles in a part of the organization. I like how you frame the fact that you might walk before you run in some of those areas. Processes, right? Or, mm. yeah, I mean, it was like, how do you look at one process and say, what if we did that differently? Mm. We thought about that piece a little bit differently. Or what if we just 
implemented the process in a different order? What if what if the discussions happen slightly differently? Does that disrupt the whole thing or doesn't it? And does it add to, um, does it add value? Does it detract? It was a little bit of dissecting and, and uh, being thoughtful about that. Running a lot of experiments is usually the hardest things for an organization to do, but it is the innovator's dilemma in, in, in most business organizations as well to be willing to have all those micro failures. And yet on a team, what you seem to be describing here and what I'm hearing from you is very much like, well, let's try this play. Let's try that play. Um, let's run it this way. Let's run it that way. Let's not take it personally. Let's be objective and clinical about whether it works and whether it serves a purpose. There's, there's a lot to be learned from what happens in sport and how it can be applied to a lot of the things that we do every day in a, in a business environment. Um, I love the intersection of the two. And I, I study, I spend time listening to coaches talk to their teams. For me, a great gift is sitting in a locker room, like listening to a coach talk to a team or listening to a group of our high performance folks talk about the nuances of what they're gonna tweak. Not because I'm a sport expert or I have any value to add to that conversation, but I always get a nugget that makes me think about how I'm gonna run our team. Mm, that's that's a that's a very deep insight. So as you as you look at this process of infecting the business world or the nonprofit world with coaching as a as a, a vulnerability and an opportunity for people, it's interesting how we observe the fact that the elite status athletes might have four specialized coaches or more to accomplish what they need to do from a health, nutrition, well-being, technical expertise background. Could you share with me what your observations have been now looking back over that coaching processes that uh, would relate to all of those who are watching and listening today as they build their career and, and seek coaching? Yeah, um, well, and I, I'll tell you, you know, interestingly, I mean, you, you think about the athlete entourage has expanded over time, right? The number of coaches, the number of specialists that are helping them. We've even over the last few years established and grown what we call psychological services, which is both the combination of sports psychology and mental health. And the interesting thing is, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the impact of what happens on the field of play that starts between the ears is something most of us take for granted. Mm. But it's very logical that what's going on in your head has massive impact on what's gonna go on as you perform as an athlete in any capacity. Sports psychology has been a field for a long time about driving performance. Mental health is a field that is still very much emerging in sport, even emerging broadly in society. Um, we now have coaches, if you will, who are playing in those two spaces independent of one another because driving performance and your mental stability and well-being are not the same thing. And I think that's instructive of how we think about coaching in our own lives and how we think about you know, where we are in the reality of what, what might be a very, very helpful business uh, coach, business cohort, advisors, et cetera, helping you drive the actions that you're, that you're doing in your day-to-day -day work might actually be very different than a need you have in getting your head in the right space from a mental health and wellness perspective. And I think you know, that that would be an example where I say, I see these worlds continuing to refine themselves a little bit. And by the way, those are all different than a personal trainer who's gonna help you get strong. Mm -hmm. When you think about the immersion that many organizations are starting to take in putting their people through peer coaching, um, we've had a process and I've been honored to have you be a part of it where we've been doing a life process review where other high achieving, high impact 
chief executives and and elite individuals have come together to to coach each other. Could you talk a little bit about what that means uh, for the individual executive and and for you personally? Absolutely. Well, there there is nothing more powerful than hearing someone who understands where you are say, I get it, I've been there, or have you thought about, um, you know, and so the peer coaching can be really, really powerful. It was life-saving for me at a time when I was in this Mm. organization, in the trenches of a very, very difficult environment. And that environment was having impact not only on, you know, how am I doing running this organization? This is hard, but it's also, this is emotionally difficult for me, for my life, for those around me and my family. Um, And so how do you navigate that? And having peer coaches who have the empathy and the visibility to be able to say, been there, felt that, understand it. And by the way, I can look at it a little bit more objectively than you can because I'm not in it. But have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Or by the way, sometimes it's just at a girl. Keep going. It's okay. We get it. The sky is not falling. Um, it may feel like that today, but it's not. You're doing a good job. A little bit of encouragement can go a long way. And I think that's where peer coaching can be really, really powerful. You know, I found it very much, as you describe, helpful to hear other people who are not in the exactly same situation share how much they struggle and how difficult it is. And even with all they've accomplished, all that you've accomplished, how that challenge never ends. And that vulnerability is what really helps you get to a place where it's okay to get better and it's, it's okay to, to struggle to do so and, and to have to step back and reaffirm why does this matter and, and what really will make a, a big difference. And I, and I think about your participation in this group during the pandemic and how many of us were dealing with all the things you described from high performance to mental health uh, issues. And all of us were also facing, in a sense, our own hero's journey in that regard. And how do we keep our life and work together? What are your observations, kind of how that has impacted um, leaders and in your organization and, and how they're coming through it and, and out of it? You know, in some ways, I think we've all learned to be better at being vulnerable. Um, and, and at the same time, we're all also now in a next phase of transition um, coming out of the pandemic and figuring out how to take what we've learned what we experienced and, and apply that to a new normal. You know, for me, um, some of that is the practical realities of, am I in the office? Am I on the road? You know, where am I physically and how am I spending my time? But it's also, how do I go back to a place where I'm, A, I'm finding incredible joy in the work, but I'm also inspiring that joy in others and making sure that everybody feels permission to be, to be happy and joyful. It was difficult to do during the pandemic. Really, yeah. really difficult to do. And yet we have to come out of that. And sometimes we have to work really hard to bring ourselves out of it, let alone lead an organization or a team of people to a place that says, this is this is fun. It's okay for us to have fun at work. We're here to enjoy ourselves. Um, and we've got to find that space. And I think that's something that I'm seeing and talking to a lot of other leaders about right now which is how do we get ourselves to a place where we get comfortable being joyful, where we find joy. And then by the way, how can we spread that um, so that we all can get back to a place of saying, let's look at the bright side of this. How can we make a game out of getting back in the game and, uh, and have the, all the joy that should be associated with being able to do that. When you look back at your career then and this incredible crucible 
for you as an individual executive, as, as a first time CEO in this context, what would be your advice to others following in that path? What do you wish you knew at the beginning of the process that, that you're starting to feel so confident about today? You know, I think it's, I think it is natural, um, particularly as a first time CEO in, in a role at a difficult time in an organization, it's natural to doubt. Um, and I wish more than anything that, that I could go back and say, be comfortable with the fact that you're not going to have this all figured out and nobody expects you to. We always put that pressure on ourselves. Mm. Um, and I think recognizing that we're putting that pressure on ourselves and trying to say, you know, it's, it's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay to doubt a little bit, um, but, but find the confidence. You're there because you deserve to be there. And nobody ever has ever had all the answers in their back pocket, right? Part of this is the journey of figuring things out, using your judgment, trusting your judgment, trusting yourself. Um, those are hard things to do um, in an environment in which the pressure feels pretty intense, but it's so important. Well, you've, you've really made a huge contribution to the, to the nation and to the organization uh, as you've taken this courageous step forward in helping all of the above. When you think about the relationships that a CEO candidate would need to build and how she or he would, would approach that, you've got this kind of 360 ecosystem. You have the team that reports to you as an executive. You have the board of directors. How would you think about that as you build your, your bench or a person who's positioning themselves to be effective in, in trying to take that next step in the ladder? Yeah, I think that, you know, the realization is you, your insights and your wisdom and your strength is going to come from people at all levels. Um, and you want to build those relationships at all levels, um, both those who might report to you or who are your peers that that one day may be your direct reports. Um, right. And always sort of keeping yourself um, grounded in the reality that Having a network of, of peers and supporters and friends, and sometimes those who challenge you the most are the most valuable to have in your circle. Um, but keeping that circle and, and maintaining contact and relationships and recognizing that if you think about those relationships and how can you help them, um, it will help you tenfold. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that, you know, moving into a CEO role, it, 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 they say it's lonely. It is lonely. And it's lonely because you have a team that reports to you and a board that you report to and really not a peer set. And so finding peer sets outside your ecosystem becomes critically important. And for me, as I said to you, it, it was a lifesaver to me to start to build a network of friends who were peers of mine, but outside of my industry um, that, that could become that resource for me, um, and I think for, for anyone in, in those institutions, you want people within your ecosystem and your industry because that's where your growth is gonna come from. But you also want people outside your ecosystem and outside your industry to be peers. I think that's where you learn the most. Well, it's an honor to have you a part of our community and we're gonna be starting up again soon. So we hope you can take that, that journey with us. It, it means a lot. Um, as we all continue to find the next set of challenges, which don't seem to be going away at any uh, any any uh, rate that we'd be comfortable with. Change seems to be accelerating. And the nature of the way the board has to govern changes as well. What would be your advice for thinking through how to best utilize and, and coach a, 
an aspiring executive to think about that role of the board? In a sense, you have many bosses. On the other hand, you're the boss. That's an interesting dynamic to figure out and one I continue to learn from. Um, but again, to the extent that you see the board as resources and advisors, and at the same time, also recognize each of them are human beings who want to contribute. So find ways to give them the opportunity to contribute um, and your relationship with them will be much, much richer. Um, the ones that challenge you the most, lean in, don't lean away. Mm. I think that that's certainly true for many of the things that you've been able to do as you've transformed this organization. And I just want to express gratitude again for what you've done and uh, for taking the time to help others start to get a glimpse into perhaps a, a bigger future that they might not have imagined without inspiration from people like you. So thanks, Sarah, for being a friend and uh, a mentor for all of us. Well, thanks, Mark. I, I will just close by saying if there are folks out there who aren't sure if you're ever going to be a CEO, I never planned on it either. I never <laughs> thought I'd get here. So just let life take you on a journey and don't close your mind to the possibilities. You'll be amazed at what comes your way. That's fabulous. Thank you so much. We can't wait to, to reconnect with you here in the, in the next few months. Thanks again. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.